Suppose someone asked you, what do you think is the biggest problem facing humans today? How would you answer? There was a recent poll in which millennials were asked that question. Now, I'm a millennial, and I hope you don't hold that against me. I didn't have much to do about the time I was born. But millennials responded to this question, what do you think is the biggest problem facing humans today? Many pointed to the problem of climate change. We're destroying our earth, they say. Others lamented the large-scale conflicts and wars that are ravaging our nations in the world today. And still others, in response to this question, named inequality and discrimination as the most critical problem facing humans today. And while we wouldn't want to will not want to deny that these are serious problems. They can all be traced like clues in a mystery novel to a deeper problem, a more serious problem. It's a problem that's diagnosed in no uncertain terms in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, in which Paul writes this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now that diagnosis that Paul gives there in Romans chapter 1 is a diagnosis that we as people find it very difficult to accept. Because we like to think of ourselves as fundamentally good We like to think of ourselves as as people in whom the seed of goodness lies somehow buried within the soil of our hearts. And all it takes is for some degree of sunlight and, and, and the proper environment for that seed to just sprout and grow into a plant of perfection. We like to think that that human beings are fundamentally good. But here it is in black and white that every human being deserves God's Judgment, and in a word, we all face, here it is, condemnation. What does this condemnation look like? Well, for starters, just go to your news sources. However you look at news, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, wherever people talk about what's going on and see whether people have found that little flower of goodness sprouting in the human heart. I checked it just this morning to see whether anything had changed. And, and no, the, the fighting, the unfairness, the injustice, the inequality, the discrimination, the wars, the large-scale conflicts, all these things continue. I did not find any headlines announcing that, that the drug addiction crisis has been over, that finally peace has been achieved in the Middle East. Now, I'm not saying that things are as bad as they could be. People are capable of accomplishing some amazing things. However, we are such a tangle of vice and virtue that the virtue that human beings are capable of only highlight the depth of our vice. Kind of like beautiful columns, pillars, part of an ancient ruins that speak only of a paradise that has been lost. Doesn't this point to the fact that you and I, and all human beings, when we look at the human race, we're under some sort of condemnation. And if you want further evidence of this, just check your own heart. Do you ever find within yourself a craving after an ideal existence, something better than what you are right now? Do you ever find yourself 
enraged at the evil that you see around you, and, and yet you find that same evil breathing and living within your very heart. And if that's not enough, j- just take it a step further and drive up to Blossom Hill Cemetery or Calvary Cemetery and start counting the headstones and, and read those names. These are people just like you, with parents and jobs and spouses and ambitions and dreams. And people now who have passed away, they're just a name etched in a stone. What's happening to everybody? What's going on? It's condemnation. It's the law of sin and death. That's the way Paul puts it in verse 2 of Romans chapter 8, the law of sin and death. Now I know that you didn't come to church this morning to hear somebody tell you that you're going to die. It's true, of course, but that's the bad news. And we're not in the business of publishing bad news. We're in the business of publishing the good news. That is, in fact, the meaning of the word gospel. The good news, the, the bad news that I just described, the, the, the bad news of the, the condemnation is like the, the black velvet on which the diamond of the gospel can be displayed in, the, in its fullness so that as we turn it and look at it from every angle, the facets will shine with a brilliance. That is the bad news, the backdrop on which the gospel shines. And what is this gospel? What is this good news? Here it is. It's the theme of the book of Romans. This is what we've been talking about in this series, that that even though all human beings are under sin and death and condemnation, God has a way of making unrighteous people righteous and of making people live with him forever. And how does he do it? It doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from some spark of goodness within the human being. It doesn't come from this seed that's somehow buried within the soil of the human heart. How does it come? It comes from the outside. That's why Paul says that the gospel is, is speaking of the righteousness, not from a man, not from a woman, but the righteousness from whom? The righteousness from God. The gospel is the righteousness from God for all who believe to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. It's the righteousness from God by faith. And that is why, as Paul writes later on in chapter 3, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, apart from human effort. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that, my friends, is why the gospel is such good news. And that is why this great announcement that we read of in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 should shake everything from from the foundation to the very rafters. And here it is. Here it is. Look at this. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. It's good news for two kinds of people. And this morning you're either in one or the other group. First, it's good news for people, for those of you who, like I was talking about earlier, are are under this condemnation. And perhaps as I describe that condemnation, you're thinking that that's me. I do feel that condemnation. And I haven't accepted that righteousness that God offers through Christ. I'm still on the outside looking in. And if so, my friend, you are hearing the best news that you could ever hear. 
Because your deepest problem, your being separated from God, it has a solution. And that solution is being offered you like, like a gift, like, like a gift wrapped up and with a label with your name on it. It's a gift of God. It's the grace of God, the righteousness from God through Jesus Christ. That's good news for you. It's good news that it could be said about you if you believe in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. But this is good news not only for those who have never believed in Jesus Christ for the first time, but it is also good news for those of us who, who assemble here regularly, who, who hear and know the gospel and who have believed the gospel and have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is good news for us as well because often you and I struggle with feelings of condemnation. Have you ever heard of phantom limb pain? It happens to people who have had an arm or leg amputated. The memory of that pain is somehow so deeply lodged in their brain that it comes shooting back, feeling exactly as if that arm or leg is still attached to their body. The limb is gone, but the pain is real. In a similar way, Christians whose sin has been forgiven, sometimes, sometimes we have these phantom pains. Guilt from something that, that you've done years ago. I wonder if that's you this morning. Guilt from an old relationship. An old sin habit. Someone that you hurt or something you did. Something that you failed to do when you should have done it. And you know the sin is gone. It's been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But the pain is real. The guilt is continues. And when you think of God, you think of Him with a frown and folded arms as if He's somehow stiff-arming you, pushing you away from the forgiveness that He has said He so freely offers in Christ. And perhaps it is that when you go through a trial, let's say you go through something difficult, and your first thought is, God must be punishing me for something that I did in the past. God must be still holding me under condemnation. Or you may be thinking, if God really loved me, if, if I really was a child of God, this wouldn't be happening to me. I wonder if that's you. I wonder if you, you tend to think like that. And if so, then, then what you need to do is hear with faith the assurance that's offered to you in Romans chapter 1, in which this declaration is made, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For this, life, for this law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I want you to look at those verses there and note carefully the division of thought. We have here in verse 1 of chapter 8 a declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation. And then in verse 2 we have... An explanation, it begins with the word for, signaling that there is a word of logic or, or reasoning. It is, it's giving the reason for this declaration. So in verse 1, we're going to call this the ruin we faced, that is condemnation. And then in verse 2, we have the reason we're free. That is, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Romans 8 verse 1 is the ruin we faced, and verse 2 is the reason we're free. So first of all, the ruin we faced is the condemnation. And I say the ruin we faced because it describes the effect of this word condemnation. 
What is this condemnation? Condemnation is the judgment that we experience because of sin. And this judgment could be both a natural consequence of sin. The fact that that sin exists in the world means that there are consequences to sin. But this condemnation is not only the natural consequences just because of the very nature of sin, but also the intended intended consequence brought about because of God's will to punish sin. This is what is meant by condemnation. It happens like this. A, A drunk driver careens through an intersection and broadsides a minivan. And that minivan is a young family and both parties are seriously injured. The drunk driver goes to court, and, and, and he's, he's, of course, has his own injuries from, from his, his crime, but he also faces the judgment, the condemnation, the verdict of the judge, of the court. You see there, the condemnation there includes both the natural consequences of his misdeed as well as the judgment from the court. And similarly, our sin has its own consequences as well as the righteous judgment of God. But notice how in this text, the condemnation is explained in verse 2 in terms of the law of sin and death. You want to know what this condemnation is? Here's how Paul explains it. In verse 2, in other words, this is the law of sin and death. That is, we can understand that to mean this way, that this could be translated, the binding authority of sin that leads to death. Sin is the engine. Death is the caboose. Everywhere sin goes, death is sure to follow. Sin is the engine. It's what, it's what drives it. It's, it's the power. And then, and then behind that comes death. Or you could think of it this way. Sin is like an axe. It's out of control. It hacks and separates. It separates people. Sin separates husbands from wives. It separates parents from children. It separates uh, the uh, people and relationships. It, it separates good things as well. It, it separates sex from the commitment of a marriage. It separates laws from justice. It separates Wealth from the ability to enjoy that wealth. This is the very nature of sin. It separates, and ultimately sin not only separates people and and good things to make them bad things, but sin ultimately separates the soul from the body and the soul from God. And that is eternal death. And that is why Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. Sin is the engine. Death is the caboose. It always follows. And have you felt this condemnation? In his famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes the central character, Christian, as a man, he writes, clothed with rags, a book in his hand, and a great burden on his back. And Christian is seeking to rid himself of the burden, and he he seeks out someone that Bunyan calls Mr. Legality. And Mr. Legality's house is near Mount Sinai. To get to Mr. Legality's house, you have to go right by Mount Sinai. 
It's the place where the law was given. And Christian is, is going to Mr. Legality's house to seek help from this the burden of, of guilt and of sin that he bears on his back. And he approaches the mountain and it, it seems so high. And the side of the mountain that's closest to the path upon which Christian is walking, it's hanging over the pathway. And, and Christian is terrified that this mountain is going to come tumbling down right on his head. And Bunyan writes, quote, There he stood still. And knew not what to do. Also his burden seemed heavier to him. Does that describe you? You look at the towering heights of God's law and you're burdened by that feeling of condemnation. And, and if that's you, then, then here's the message that you need to hear. The message is this, that there is, is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There, there is no condemnation. And here we come across the negation of the condemnation. So we looked at the ruin we face, which is the condemnation. The explanation of it is the law of sin and death. That is the binding authority of sin that leads to death. Now here's the negation of this condemnation, the word, the word no. And this verse answers three questions about the negation of our condemnation. Why? For whom? And when? Why? Why is this condemnation negated? For whom is this condemnation negated? And then when is it negated? So first of all, let's answer this question, why? Why is it, as Paul writes, there is no condemnation? Well, you notice the word, if you're looking at your Bible, look at the word, therefore. Therefore. It means that what is going on here is this is the conclusion of an argument. There, there are premises of an argument that precede this declaration. It, it's actually connecting this verse here with a link of, links of arguments that have been going on since the beginning of this letter. And, and the most immediate link goes, takes us back to verse 6 in chapter 7. So you're in chapter 8. Go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 6. We're, we're looking at where this word, therefore, connects earlier in the epistle to the Romans. When we look at verse 6, we read this of chapter 7. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then we skip to verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore. Now, therefore, why? Because we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And Paul here is reminding us why there is no condemnation. It's because of something that God has done for us in Christ. The, the therefore links even further back to chapter 5. And if you recall from last time, we're giving this big picture overview of the letter to Romans. And we learned that chapter 5 begins a new section in the letter of Romans in which Paul is offering assurances to the Christian based on their having been justified by faith. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 1, and you read these words. Therefore, and here it is, since we have been justified by faith, and this catapults a whole series of, of assurances offered to those who have been justified by faith. 
because we've been justified by faith, we are no longer enmity at enmity with God. We have peace with God because we've been justified by faith. It doesn't mean that we are free to do whatever we want. It doesn't mean that we're suddenly can give this excuse, oh, because grace abounds, then I can sin. No, that's not what grace does. Grace, true saving grace, transforms. True saving grace frees us from the power of the law, the tyranny of the law. True transforming grace, this this righteousness that we've been given, furthermore, assures us that we are God's children. So as when Paul says, therefore, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he's referring all the way back to the statement that those who have believed in Jesus Christ receive righteousness that's not their own. And so why is it that we have no condemnation? It is because we are justified. We're declared righteous by faith. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Now, this leads naturally to the second question that's answered here in our text. The first question under the negation of our condemnation is, is why? And we discover that from the word therefore, which connects with this logical argument going on in the, the earlier part of the book of Romans. But now the question is, okay, who, who is it that can say, there, there's no condemnation for me? And the answer is, right there in the text, there is therefore now no condemnation for whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is it that those who are in Christ Jesus can say, there is no more condemnation for me? It's because of this. Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus himself has faced the condemnation, has taken the condemnation for you. That's why those who are in Christ can say, there is no condemnation for me. This is what Peter was talking about in his first epistle when he said this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? This expression is, is all over Paul's epistles. One of, one of Paul's favorite expressions, in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, describes the, the nature of the Christian life. And here's what it means. It means to be so closely connected, so closely related to Christ, to enjoy such a tight connection that, that it could be said about you that, that you did the things that Christ did. Uh, such a close unity that even though you did not actually do them yourself, because by virtue of your union with Christ, it can be said that you participated in them. And people have called this connection union with Christ. So here's one way to think about it. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Now suppose for some reason, just some miraculous change in your body and in your life circumstances, suddenly you find yourself on a football field and you are going to play in the Super Bowl. And you've been training for this and this is the big moment. You've been, you've been getting ready for this and, and now the, the fans are just packing into the stadium and people are cheering and going nuts and they're, they're cheering for you and your team and and, and it looks like you're going to win, and you're so excited about this, and you, you step out onto the field ju just before the game starts, and you're jogging just, just to warm up a little bit. And as luck would have it, you, you trip over yourself, and you end up spraining both ankles. 
And now you're completely unable to contribute to the game at all. But, but in, in agony and pain and utter disappointment, you, you sit on the bench the whole time and, and your team begins to play. And those who are wearing the jersey, with your team on it, you're wearing the same jersey. They, they, they're out there and, and they're playing the game. And when your team finally wins, your teammates just go crazy and, and they run over to you and they, they pick you up off the bench and they carry you on, on their shoulders to the field and you begin to gather around that beautiful trophy. And, and you, as not having contributed to any part of the game, you, you reach forward and you put your hand on the trophy and you say, we won! Now, no one's going to say to you, hey, wait just a second. What do you mean, we won? You didn't do anything. No one's going to say that. You're wearing the jersey. You're on the team. You have as much a claim to the victory as the guys who are out there who won the victory, even though you couldn't because of your injury play at all. The victory is yours. You could reach out and you could touch the trophy and you could say, so we did it. We won, even though you contributed nothing to the game. And in a far deeper way, we could say that the things that Jesus did, the victory that he won, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and even his triumph over death through his resurrection, these things are ours because we're in him. We're on his team. And this is exactly why Paul writes in Romans 6, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I actually want you to look at this. So turn back to Romans chapter 6. Look at the language of the union with Christ. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be, look at the language of unity, the language of this union with Christ. We shall certainly be what? United with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This is the nature of our relationship with Christ. It's like this. I didn't live a perfect life, but Jesus did, so I did too in him. I couldn't pay the penalty for my sin, but Jesus did, so I did too in him. I don't deserve God's endless love and acceptance, but Jesus does, so I do too in him. And one day my body will die, but Jesus conquered death, and so will I in him. I deserve eternal condemnation. Jesus took the condemnation for me. Therefore, I can touch that trophy etched on one side with the words, justified by faith, and on the other side, no condemnation. And I could say, we won. The victory in Christ is, is mine. I didn't do anything to earn it, but because I'm in Christ, in Christ, those in Christ Jesus can say, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's for whom. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're believing in him, 
You're believing that his death and burial and resurrection were for not, not just the sins of the world in general, but for your sins in particular, my sins. By the grace of God and upon the authority of his word, I declare to you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The three questions under this idea of there being the negation of our condemnation. Why? Because we have been declared righteous. For whom? It is those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the final question is when? And this is so simple. It's so easy for us to miss. You're in Romans chapter 6. Flip back to chapter 8. When is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? What does it say here? Look at the text. There is therefore what? There is therefore, what is it? Now, there is therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, we don't have to wait until some future age. We don't have to wait until we we feel like, I've done enough. I've had my devotions consistently enough. I've finally gotten every day this month. Now I could finally say, oh, there's no condemnation for me. I've finally treated my spouse like I felt like I should treat her. I finally have been doing an honest job at work. I've finally been, been lust-free or, or habit-free for, for a long time. And now I can finally feel justified, feel like there's no condemnation. That's not what this says at all. It says there is therefore now no condemnation. This is the time when you can say no condemnation if you are indeed in Jesus Christ. Imagine being a million dollars in debt. Every day... When, when you get a call on your phone, it's a number you don't recognize. You're thinking, oh, is it the collections agency? The mail carrier comes and you see the, the mail and, and every letter that, that's official looking, you think it's got to be a bill. It's another thing I need to pay. With every phone call and every letter, your, your stomach just twists into knots. Because you're afraid you're being held accountable for the debt. And then one day, a wealthy friend pays that debt off completely for you. And you're debt free. And now out of habit, when a letter comes in the mail or your phone vibrates with, from an unknown caller, you, you get this, this lurch in your stomach again. You've got to remember, you'll never be called account to account for that sin. In a similar way, God will never, He will never condemn you for your sin because you are in Jesus Christ now. Now, it could be that you still experience the consequences, the natural consequences of sin, and it could even be that you experience the discipline that God promises to bring into the lives of those whom he calls his sons and daughters. If you're without discipline, as the writer of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews says, then, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. And yet, if you are a child of God, you will never be condemned ultimately and in eternity for your sin because, why? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt is paid now. And you might say, but I still struggle with sin. The right reply comes back. There is therefore now no condemnation. 
You might say, hey, I'm still struggling with feelings of guilt. Believe the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation. You might say, but I still feel the effects of this condemnation, that the sin and the pain and the frustration. And, and to that I would say, yes, in the sin-cursed world, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But friends, it is only the shadow of death. For the rays of the new day have pierced our night. Yes, condemnation, that no condemnation rather, belongs to a, a time of a, of a future age, but it is something that we could say now. Now there is no condemnation for me because I'm in Jesus Christ. That is, my friends, when we can say there is no condemnation. Now that's the declaration we see in Romans 8 verse 1. It is, it is, the, it is the ruin we faced. The ruin we faced. But now in verse 2, we have the reason we're free. The ruin we faced, Romans 8, 1, now verse 2, the reason we're free. And I say reason, as we said earlier, because the word for signals the coming of a reason. And to put it more precisely, it signals an answer to a question. Okay, what happened that we are free from this condemnation? I like to think of it this way. Verse 1, in, in verse 1, we heard the engine roar. No condemnation. All right? Now, let's open the hood and see what this engine looks like. Let's open up the hood. Now, and when we open up the hood, we've heard it roar. No condemnation. We open up. We see something, someone more precisely, who will now take center stage for much of Romans 8. And here it is. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, here's where we need to point out a major theme that we get introduced to here in the first two-thirds of Romans chapter 8. Recall, as we said earlier, that beginning in chapter 5, Paul is offering assurances to those who are in Christ Jesus who have his righteousness. Assurance is because we have peace with God, as we saw in chapter 5. Assurance is because Christ rescues us from the tyranny of Adam's sin, because Christ rescues us from the tyranny of our own sin, because Christ rescue, rescues us from the tyranny of, of the law, as we see in Romans chapter 7. But, but now here, we're in Romans chapter 8, we come to the most precious and the most powerful of all the assurances, and what is it? It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And just to make sure we understand this, notice how much attention is given to the Spirit of God in this chapter. Look at verse 2. You see the Spirit is mentioned right here in our text. But if you flip over all the way to verse 27, we see that the Spirit is mentioned twice in that verb, and he who searched in that verse. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the, here it is, Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But from verse 2 to verse 27, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times. 19 times in those verses. And so we could just peer down the path a little bit, and, and this will open up a discussion as to how this chapter can be divided, as we looked at very briefly last week. So for verses 1 through 13 we see that the Spirit gives 
life. And notice the connection between the spirit and life. In verse 2, we see it right on the surface, a spirit of, of life. Go all the way to verse 13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So from from verses 1 through verse 13 of Romans chapter 8, there's this idea of the Spirit being the one who gives us assurance because the Spirit gives us a new kind of life. The Spirit of life. Verses 1 through 13. But then at verse 14, the discussion shifts a little bit. And we see a different emphasis on what the Spirit is doing for us to assure us as believers in Christ who have been justified by faith. So look at verse 14. Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God. And then he begins to speak of the sonship that we enjoy in Jesus Christ and that the Spirit assures us. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then he discusses this idea of adoption. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received what? You see it there in the text in verse 15, the spirit of adoption. So verses 1 through 13, the spirit of what? The spirit of life. Now verses 14 through 17, we see that the spirit guarantees our adoption as God's children. So the spirit gives life. Verse, uh, the second section dealing with the Holy Spirit, verses 14 through 17, is the Spirit guarantees our adoption. And then things shift a little bit again in verse 18. So from verses 18 to 30, we see that the Holy Spirit grants hope for future glory. Did you catch that breakdown there? The first section of chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, the Spirit gives life. Verses 14 through 17, the Spirit guarantees our adoption. And then verses 18 through 30, the Spirit is the one who grants hope for future glory. Look at this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How do we know about this glory? Because we have the Spirit within us, and and the Spirit is, is evoking in us a longing for this future glory, and at the same time guaranteeing that we will enjoy the future glory. And let, let me be clear about this. In the last message, when we talked about the theme of the book of Romans, we, we noticed the fact that the glory of God is a theme that runs from beginning to end, all the way from the beginning when Paul says that people have exchanged the glory of God for images, to the very end in which Paul declares that all things are to the glory of God, and we have even the section in the middle in chapter 11 near the end when he extols the the glory of God and says to God be the glory forever and ever. So the glory of God is from beginning to end. The glory that we enjoy that it speaks of in Romans chapter 8, specifically in verse 28, look at it there, the glory that we enjoy is not the glory that comes from ourselves. It is reflected glory, just like the moon is not a source of light. The moon only reflects the light of the sun. So the light that we have, the glory that we have, is simply reflected glory. It's glory that we reflect because Ultimately, we will become like Jesus Christ. That's God's intent for us. That's where things are going. That's what God is using every circumstance in your life to bring about. Ultimately, when you see Jesus face to face, as John writes in his first epistle, we will be what? Like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's not glory that comes from within ourselves. We have none. It is reflected glory. But this is what the Spirit is guaranteeing for us. And this is what we see occupying much of the discussion in Romans chapter 8. And what this means for us then is, as one person has put it, quote, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. Uh, 
That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is so much confusion about the Holy Spirit, and we don't have the time to dispel even some of the myths. Suffice it to say that it is tragic that people have taken the Holy Spirit and done the craziest, most unbiblical things in His name. And because of the rampant error surrounding the Holy Spirit, we must be so careful to guard how we treat the Holy Spirit and insist that everything that we believe and everything that we teach about the Holy Spirit comes directly from Scripture. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit is explained in Romans 8, verse 2. It is this, that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we took this little excursus, this parentheses, just to look ahead at the structure of the passage. But now let's go back to verse 2. And again, to remind you of of the the structure of verses 1 and 2, we're looking at the ruin we face, that is the condemnation, the law of sin and death, and now in verse 2, the reason we're free. So why is it that we're free? We're, we're looking under the hood. Remember, you've heard the engine roar, no condemnation. Now, how is this working? I mean, what is going on? What kind of power is at work here? It's the power. It's the authority. It's the, it's the pull. It's the, the power of the law of the Spirit of life. What is meant by the law of the Spirit of life? Well, it stands parallel to this law that we've already looked at, the law of sin and death. Think of it this way, that this law is something like a principle or a power. We could think of it almost like, a, 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 like the law of gravity. In accordance with this law, if I were to drop this item, it would fall to the ground. It, it's just what happens. It's, it's the law. It is gravity. In accordance with the law of sin and death, people are bound to sin, and so people are bound to die. But because of the Spirit, there's another power, there's, there's another authority at work, and this authority is brought about by the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one that brings about this, this life. Just as we were in fetters to the law of sin and death, so now in Christ Jesus we are set free by the Spirit of life. Now, then this is what we understand Paul to mean, the Spirit who gives life. Okay, in contrast to the ruin that we faced, chained, these manacles are forged around us. These unbreakable chains have finally been, been burst through by what? By It's the law of the Spirit who gives life. We were on this, this train wreck of sin and death, in which sin was the engine and death was the caboose, and there seemed to be no solution. And now, because we're in Jesus Christ, the Spirit breaks us free from that. No more law of sin and death. A new kind of law, a new kind of authority, a new principle that's at work. What is that principle? It's the, it's the Spirit of life. Now, let's return to the original question. What makes this engine run. What is it that liberates? It is God's Spirit giving new life, snapping the chains that bound us to sin and death. What exactly does this mean? What does this freedom mean? Because it says the law of the Spirit of life has set you, what? Set you free in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that we're free? A lot of people associate this idea of freedom. Okay, I could do whatever I want. The Spirit Freeze me. Well, we, we must understand exactly what this freedom means. 
And to understand what it means, we need to go back to chapter 7, and again, that key verse that is forming the logical link between Romans 8 and Romans 7, in which Paul says, but now, and there's also a link between the now in Romans 8.1 and the now in Romans 7.6, but, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Okay, what is the purpose? What is the result? What comes about is the release from the law. Is it just lawlessness? Is it abandonment? Is it complete licentiousness? Is it do whatever we want? Is it make our own rules? No, that's not what the Spirit frees us to do. That's not what's meant by this breaking of the manacles and shackles of sin. Here's what, it, here's what happens as a result of this freedom. It's so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. doesn't mean we quit serving. It's not that we have no master. It's that we have the right master. It's not that suddenly we have no obligations or new, no, no, no duties. It's that we have the right ones and, the, and we can do it in the right way. And here's what it means. Before Christ, you could not obey God's law. Instead of providing you the means for righteousness, God's law was almost like fanning the flame of your, of your sin nature. As Paul put it in verse 10 of chapter 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? Because we're powerless to keep it. Have you ever had a nightmare in which you needed to run but couldn't? You needed to lift something, you needed to do something, but you, you tried and you, you could not. Now, living under the law is like living in the nightmare of needing desperately to do something but being completely unable to do it. And it is the Spirit of God who wakes us from this nightmare of sin and death to serve God in a new way. What is this new way? The new way of serving God is obedience to God that springs not from guilt, not from a sense of, oh, I've got to do this because if I don't do it, I'm condemned. No, no. That's not the way that we serve the Spirit. It's not from guilt but it's from gratitude. It's not from mere duty, but from delight. It's not in order to get God's grace, but because God's grace has been already given. It's not in order to pry God's fingers off from the favors you think you deserve, but it's because God has opened his hands to give you the life you don't deserve. This is what it means to serve in, in the new way. I mean, in the old way, the only way that you could serve was in a way hoping to win God's favor. In the new way, you're serving because you have God's favor in Christ. That's the new way. Before you trusted Christ, the only kind of obedience you were capable of was one that sprang entirely from yourself and for yourself. But now, because of the work of God's Spirit in you, here is the truth. We're not bound to that any longer. We're free to obey God in a way that we could not do before. Kind of joyful, from the heart, delight, grace-filled, humble obedience. And that, my friends, that's what's going on in the engine. That's what's going on under the hood. That's what's going on because of the roar. No condemnation because, because you've been set free. The law of the spirit of life has snapped the chains of the law of sin and death, and it allows you to serve God in a way that you could not serve Him apart from Jesus Christ, joyful, grace-filled, gratitude-motivated. You have new life in the Spirit. And that's what it means to have no condemnation. When I think of no condemnation, I think of the story of a lady in the 1700s who's struggling with guilt. So she wrote to her pastor and 
expressed to him the struggle with guilt that she was having. And in his letter of reply, her pastor wrote these words. Though our sins have been deep dyed like scarlet and crimson, enormous as mountains and countless as the sands, the sum total is but sin has abounded. But where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. That pastor knew what he was talking about because he himself was a former slave trader who also became the author of one of our most loved hymns, Amazing Grace. That pastor was John Newton. And John Newton was not the only one who found comfort in the declaration, no condemnation. Last time we spoke of Martin Luther, the the champion of, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and he, of course, was the one who rediscovered, as it were, this doctrine and, and revolted against centuries of ecclesiastical malpractice and heresy in the Roman Catholic Church. But even though Martin had, had championed the cause of, of righteousness and, and, and grace in Jesus Christ, not by works, even though he was the one that had plumbed the depths of the book of Galatians and, and the epistle to the, the Romans, Martin Luther, like, like many of us, still felt the phantom pains of guilt. And it is said that he, quote, would often refer to visits from the devil, how the devil would come and whisper in his ear, accusing him of all manner of filthy sin. Martin, you're a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. To which Luther would respond, Well, yes, I am. Indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. If you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mention, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed, but I'm so wicked that I'm unaware of having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ died for all of them. His blood is sufficient, and on the day of judgment I shall be exonerated because He has taken all my sins on Himself and clothed me in His perfect righteousness. That's why I love that hymn that we sang earlier. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. So, my friends, bid your fears a hearty farewell, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Plagued by doubt, Burdened by memories, 
harassed by the thought that God is making you suffer, judging you for your sin, holding condemnation over your head, my friend, believe it. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death.